This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Aquariumania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Sci-fi enthusiasts may remember that in Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Captain Nemo's submarine was named the Nautilus. Named after one of the most beautiful creatures of the ocean, the chamber of Nautilus for many years was poorly understood. Today, more of its biology and ecology is known thanks to the work of dedicated marine scientists. My guest today is Nautilus expert, marine scientist, and educator, Dr. Greg Barord. Join us as Greg explains some of the mysteries of the Nautilus. We'll be right back after these messages. If you've ever shared your home and heart with a charmingly naughty animal who's always up to mischief, you'll fall in love with the Klepto Kitty who stars in Talk to the Paw by Melinda Metz. Talk to the Paw is a funny, heartwarming novel about a single girl, a single guy, and MacGyver, an adorable tabby cat with a not-so-adorable habit of stealing from the neighbors. Talk to the Paw is on sale now everywhere books are sold. Visit kensingtonbooks.com for more info. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Dr. Greg Barord, Nautilus expert, marine scientist, and educator. Thanks for your time, Greg. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Roy. So, you know, I've always been fascinated by the Nautilus, you know, likewise when, uh, you know, ever since I was a, a youngster, too, and really primarily kind of just by looking at the shells. But before we kind of talk a little bit more about the Nautilus itself, I want to get a little bit of history on you and your interests. How did you first get interested in marine aquatic life? What things kind of influenced you? Yeah, so I, uh, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, you know, so right near the ocean. But the way my dad tells it is, you know, as a four or five year old, I was watching a documentary about giant squid and, you know, that just clicked in my mind that, you know, I wanted to study the ocean, you know, become a marine biologist. And, you know, I've been kind of trekking towards that ever since. So now, did, had you had aquariums growing up at all? And if so, when did you first get one and how did you kind of get involved with all of that? Yeah, I think I was about 10, and uh, my first aquarium was about a five-gallon tank with uh, a couple zebra danios and uh, all freshwater, and uh, kind of grew from there to you know eventually getting a, a 50-gallon tank, having some mollies in there, guppies, nothing really too crazy, just having fish and uh, learning about you know feeding them, cleaning tanks, just kind of watching fish up close and seeing how cool their behavior was. So let's let's go to Nautilus. And how did you become interested in uh, Nautiluses? In an email conversation, I kind of asked you about the plural, which I guess you can say Nautili or Nautiluses, and you prefer Nautiluses. Yeah, I think technically either one's correct. Um, I think if you trace it back to the root uh, of the Greek word, Nautiluses is more correct. But you know, it's it, it's all good. So 
ironically, I didn't really know too much about the Nautilus until after I graduated college. You know, I'd learned about them. I'd seen the shells, but I was still really focused on, you know, studying squid and doing something in that. And it wasn't until I attended a conference in Galveston, Texas in 2006 uh, where Dr. Bruce Carlson, who's one of the uh, famous Nautilus researchers out there, was just giving a talk. And I don't even know what the talk was on. I just remember him saying that, you know, we don't know a lot about the Nautiluses. You know, this is a perfect area for some young folks to kind of get interested in and answer some really hard questions that we've been trying to answer for, for 30 years or so. And, you know, from the day after that, I set on studying Nautiluses in lab settings, aquarium settings in the field you know, trying to answer all those questions that Dr. Carlson put forth in 2006. Going from undergrad then, what made you decide, and you know, this is always kind of an interesting question, I think, for a lot of listeners, maybe some of the kids in grade school, high school, you know, what makes you decide to go to graduate school to kind of study a real specific area, become a scientist? And uh, so maybe talk a little bit about that and also uh, where you ended up attending and what you, um, you know, were involved with. Yeah. So, you know, even as an undergrad, I still didn't really know what it meant to be a marine biologist or be a scientist. Uh, I kind of thought I knew. I knew at least that I, I had to go to grad school, get a PhD if I wanted to work at a research facility or a college and kind of do my own research, answer my own questions. So that was my kind of trajectory all along. Ironically, I took a, a pit stop in between grad school and undergrad and worked on fishing boats in Alaska. And I was on a fishing boat where I got a call from the City University of New York Graduate Center, where they asked me if I wanted to accept a position into their grad school program. And I fortunately had service enough to answer the call. I said yes. And you know, a few months later, I was living in uh, Brooklyn, New York. So kind of a whirlwind to, to go from a fishing boat 100 people on it to Brooklyn, New York to study Nautiluses and to get my PhD with, you know, millions and millions of people just in that New York City area. So um, you did your uh, master's and then you did your PhD. And I guess, you know, maybe I think we're going to talk more about this in like the latter half of this interview, but maybe really briefly, what kind of areas were you sort of looking at or focusing on? Yeah, so one of my big focuses in grad school was the behavior of Nautiluses. And that's why I uh, went to Brooklyn, New York. My advisor was Dr. Jennifer Basil. She does a lot of cool behavior work with Nautiluses and also crawfish and some other animals. So behavior wasn't a field that I knew too much about. So I kind of took a leap of faith. I, I knew I wanted to work with Nautiluses. You know, I knew working with Dr. Basil would help me learn a lot. And um, I went from there to study behavior in the lab, the field, and then kind of have gone more of the, the conservation route uh, with studying wild populations and such. Okay. Tell us about your day job now. I, I know uh, you spend a lot of time in the field and have spent time in the lab, and we'll discuss more of that later. But I know on a day-to-day -day job, you're real involved with, obviously, teaching. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so my last year of my dissertation, I had a job offer to take over a marine biology program in Des Moines, Iowa. And, um, you know, it was hard to pass up. I, I couldn't pass it up. So in the last year, as I was writing my dissertation, doing all the final things, I started taking over this marine biology program. And that's still where I'm at today. It's a pretty unique place. We have about 140 students in a marine science department that run their own laboratory and aquarium. So a day-to-day -day thing here in class is 
your normal kind of lectures from a marine biology standpoint about how oceans work, the diversity of animals. And then the students are able to just go next door to there are about 120 different marine aquariums that they take care of, manage, feed every day, and really see those animals up close. So it's kind of a nice way to cement some of the book work we do with real living animals, real behaviors that they can see, they can do research projects with, just interact with to just kind of foster that appreciation of the ocean and connect folks to the ocean a little more. Wow, that's really cool. I would have loved to be involved in a program like that. Yeah. Do a lot of their graduates kind of go and continue in the field or, you know, are you familiar with any of the graduates? Yeah, we we have a a fair amount who are currently working in aquariums throughout the country. Uh, We also have a good amount that are still in school, kind of going the research PhD route. You know, I think it's about normal to what you would imagine in college of people changing majors. Um, I think about 25% of our students probably go into the marine science trajectory. Okay. Now, as I mentioned, and as uh, you know, as obvious, you, you spend a lot of time with Nautilus as well. And I know you've been just uh, being friends with you on Facebook, all the different places you kind of travel to to do some of the work or, uh, you know, or are engaged with uh, Nautilus-related activities. Maybe go into some of that and uh, tell us some of the official areas that you work with with regard to on Nautilus and Nautilus conservation? Yeah, so probably the longest running one is I am a an advisor on this aquatic um, invertebrate taxon advisory group, which is through the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And uh, just kind of a, a group of aquarists throughout the country and even the world um, in some areas that work to develop the best husbandry techniques, the best protocols for managing captive invertebrates. And nautiluses are one of these invertebrates that need to be managed in zoos and aquariums. So I've been working with that group for almost about 10 years. And uh, as my research and work has kind of taken many other places and I've uh, started to get more involved with conservation aspects of it, I uh, started working with a group called CITES, which is the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species, which basically regulates trade in any species on the planet that might be overly exploited. You know, the good examples are rhinoceroses and uh, elephants, seahorses and sharks. And uh, we've been working for a while to get Nautilus similar protections of those through this group, this CITES group. Okay, great. Well, got a couple minutes before we're going to break, but I'd like to kind of dive in, no pun intended, to uh, some uh, discussion about the Nautilus itself. So I think most people are probably familiar with it, but maybe for, for folks that may not be, can you maybe describe and also discuss exactly what the chamber Nautilus is and maybe a little bit about species or subspecies, that, that sort of information? Yeah, I think the the Nautilus is like the most well-known mysterious animal because I I think we all know it based on the design. It's probably in our homes, on our shirts, you know, in architecture. But very few people know about the animal. And, you know, kind of simple way of putting it, it's kind of like an octopus with 50 tentacles inside of a shell. The main differences are octopus are able to change color, Nautiluses aren't able to change color, and Nautiluses and their family lineage, the Nautiloids, have been around for almost 500 million years, which is pretty incredible when you compare it to other animal groups that, you know, you think of dinosaurs as these ancient animals, but Nautiluses predate all of them. And uh, they're kind of one of the few constant organisms on this planet. 
And you know, a lot of folks refer to them as living fossils. And uh, the main reason that folks do that is because they do look pretty similar to their fossil. They have evolved, they have made changes, but if you look at some fossil nautiloids, the shell is there, the basic anatomy is all there, and they've kind of taken that throughout you know, these millions of years of evolution as something that's worked for them. And maybe talk a little bit about species, I guess. Yeah, that's a, kind of a contentious question right now, but right now there are at least two or three species you know, based on the best genetic data that we have and the morphological data that we have. Uh, the hard thing with Nautilus is there's a lot of thought that right now they're diversifying. So we're just not able to see the fact that there are so many different species based on our analyses yet. You know, in two or three million years, maybe when someone comes back and looks at their genes and looks at their DNA, then they'll find out that there's 50 different species of Nautiluses. But, you know, right now, some people say two or three, and there are still others that, you know, will say up to 50. So it's it's kind of a, a huge range of number of species with them. Okay. Now, where do you find Nautiluses? So I think this is the best part, especially living in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, where past couple of days, it's about minus 20 degrees. They live in the Indo-Pacific, so areas like Australia, Philippines, Fiji, and, you know, especially in January, February months, if you can get out there to, you know, do your research to some of these awesome climates, you don't have to deal with the cold weather. It beats studying them anywhere else, and that's the only place they're found in the world. They do go as far west in the Pacific as Thailand and India, but Australia is their most southern part, and the Philippines is going to be their most northern part. So... I think we're going to take a, a quick break right after this next question, but can you give us maybe a brief intro into their biology and anatomy? And you mentioned a little bit about that already, but why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit more? Yeah, so the Nautilus, the, the main thing is their striped shell. They have this really unique shell. Um, it's striped with either kind of a brown or a purplish pattern, depending on where the Nautilus lives. And it uses a shell for protection and buoyancy. So if you're able to cut the shell in half down the center, you'd find all these little chambers that are filled with a fluid that's called cameral fluid. And this fluid helps them to maintain buoyancy in the water when they do their migrations and move about. They're soft parts. They have up to 90 tentacles. Uh, they have two eyes, which uh, I like to think of it as kind of as humans when we are underwater and we open our eyes, it's kind of like that blurred vision. We don't think they can see very well. They can't make out really specific details, uh, but big shapes, large structures in the oceans, we think they can see really, really well. But they don't have a lens or anything that uh, squid or octopus have or humans have. And the last kind of soft part of them is this hood that's on the top. And their shell is a great defense mechanism so that when a predator comes near it, the Nautilus kind of retracts into the shell. And the only soft part is this hood, which is a really uh, I say soft, but it's more like a leathery kind of texture. So it's really hard to break into for fish. Uh, hopefully, once the fish can't break into that, the Nautilus can kind of scurry away after that. What is the um, typical size, I guess, that you or someone would see? And, you know, like in terms of the maybe smallest and the largest, I know there's probably stages or sizes that aren't easily caught, but what, what do you have you seen maybe? So they, they hatch out at about the size of a dime, I mean, an, an inch diameter or so. And uh, the largest adults can get up to about 24, 25 centimeters in diameter. So pretty large. And um, anywhere in between that can be caught. Uh, very few small ones are caught, probably because they fall through the traps. But 
the range of sizes out there throughout the whole Indo-Pacific is pretty varied. I don't think I've ever seen a, you mentioned kind of a purple. Is it a pretty like light color purple or is it, I don't think uh, I've ever seen any of those. It's pretty dark and the, the purple ones are found specifically, at least right now that we know of, in the northern Great Barrier Reef of Australia. Okay, cool. Well, let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussions of the Nautilus with my guest, Greg Ferrard after these messages from our sponsors. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. Tired of wasting money on giant bags, boxes, and jugs of litter that don't last? Switch to World's Best Cat Litter, the only litter that lets you use less and get more. World's Best Cat Litter uses the concentrated power of corn to deliver outstanding odor control and easy cleanup. It's lightweight, 99% dust-free, and pet, people, and planet-friendly. It's even flushable. Make the switch to World's Best Cat Litter and save $2. Visit www.saveonworldsbest.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Dr. Greg Barord, marine scientist, educator, and Nautilus expert. Well, we talked a little bit about their biology and anatomy, and I kind of want to have you give us a little info on some maybe general life history and ecology. I know um, of the very little I know, I know they kind of go up and down in the ocean. I know there's a lot more to, to them than that, but maybe if you can give us a little bit more info in general in terms of uh, reproduction and, and as well as kind of their ecology, that would be great. Yeah, they do these really cool migrations. And for 40, 50 years, we kind of thought every Nautilus did the same migration across the Indo-Pacific. In the daytime, they're deep to stay away from predators. When night hits, they come shallower to find prey. And it wasn't until we you know, actually started looking at other populations and tracking other Nautilus that we realized that we were completely wrong. It seems like every population of Nautilus throughout the Indo-Pacific behaves a little differently, which makes sense. I mean, every area in the Pacific is going to be a little different. It's going to have different species. It's going to have a different habitat. Uh, it's going to have so many different things that are going to affect how animals move. So um, it's just a great example of the more we're studying Nautiluses, kind of the more questions we're developing and the more we're really learning about how they move throughout the day and throughout the night. And kind of related to their movements, you know, one question is, you know, why are they moving? One thing, animals have to eat. It wasn't until recently that, you know, we even knew what they might eat in the wild. In the 80s, there was some work done on gut contents analysis of Nautilus that showed crustaceans, crabs, and particularly hermit crabs in their gut. And that was really all the information we had to go on on what Nautiluses ate in the wild. And some of the recent work we've been doing using underwater video, we think we've recorded how Nautiluses find food, which is by dragging their 90 tentacles through the sand, searching for small prey items. And when they do find something, they're also able to dig under the sand, which is really, really unique for an animal like that. Uh, but it makes a whole lot of sense. And when you put those 90 tentacles moving around for different prey items in the sand with the fact that nautiluses have one of the largest olfactory organs in the animal kingdom, um, especially among invertebrates, you know, you could see why this animal has lived in the deep sea and why their family lineage has lived for you know, almost 500 million years. They're really good at finding food where there isn't food. 
the deep sea is it's pretty diverse there are a lot of things there you know but food is scarce and when you find it you need to be able to capture it you need to be able to find it quickly so that something else doesn't outcompete you before you go on with the, uh, a little more, I had so basically people thought that you were eating what on the surface. I mean, I, I, you already mentioned the fact that the populations are different. Since it sounds like they're probably eating more at the bottom, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah. That's a that's a great uh, great question. So when they migrate from you know about four or five hundred meters to shallower waters, they're migrating along the coral reef slope. So they're an animal that's termed nectobenthic. And that means they basically stay within about a meter of the ocean floor. When they are migrating, they are, you know, staying really close to the ocean floor. So when they're searching for their prey, they're still kind of dragging those tentacles along the bottom. They're not, they're not hanging out in the water column like uh, sharks or anything like that. They're finding their prey in rocks on the ocean floor. Yeah, that was a good question. Sorry. Okay, keep going about uh, a little more life history. Yeah, and so um, one of the cool things that we see in both aquariums and video from the field is that when they do find food, it's great. They find food, and then this food draws in other nautiluses. And they don't live in big groups, as far as we know, in the wild. They're solitary animals. So if you're a solitary animal, you find food, and you find other nautiluses, you might as well try and mate because you really don't know when the next opportunity is going to be. So uh, that's what we see. You know, the Nautiluses get their meal, and then they go around trying to figure out which one's a male and which one's a female. At least looking at them from the video, we aren't able to really tell. They aren't uh, dimorphic enough like some animals to tell the difference between male and female. But from these studies and from some laboratory work, males will just try and mate with anything, and females are actually repelled by other females. Uh, which is kind of kind of kind of strange. So um, the males are just looking for something to you know transfer their spermatophore to, and uh, the females are just trying to stay away from other females. So really, really unique life strategy. But in the deep sea, you know, it makes perfect sense. That's pretty um, funny. So you know, related to the the mating, you know, if there is an occurrence, their reproduction is just so weird when you compare it to other cephalopods, other octopus or squid or even other invertebrates, their reproduction is more like uh, mammals, large sharks, sea turtles. Nautiluses don't become sexually mature until about 12 or 15 years of age, which is really crazy if you're a cephalopod. Many cephalopods become sexually mature within just a few months. And when they do become mature, you know, the chance meeting of finding a mate probably takes a couple years. And at least based on captive studies, when the eggs are laid, they take a year to hatch, a year to develop, a year to hatch. And, you know, you can imagine if these eggs are being laid at 100, 150 meters, it's going to be a lot colder. There's a lot more pressure at that depth. Um, it's probably taking more than a year for these eggs to hatch, maybe up to two or three years. So their life history is just really, really in the slow lane. And that is what's kind of been a huge factor in some of the fisheries that have been going on in the Indo-Pacific starting in the 70s because based on how many nautiluses were being fished out, the populations just couldn't respond and they couldn't replenish stocks quickly enough. So small populations and even bigger populations in some areas would just be overfished really, really, really quickly. How many eggs do they lay at a time or is it kind of an ongoing thing? Again, we only know um, information from their uh, reproduction based on lab studies and eggs and at least in the captivity and aquariums, they lay up to about 10 each year, and they don't die after they lay the eggs uh, like other cephalopods. But again, that's just kind of our best guess based on what we see happening in aquariums is up to 10, which is 
again, really, really, really low. So what were, um, you mentioned behavior. So a lot of the information you're kind of telling us now, some of the work that you did while you were in grad school, what were you working on specifically? Yes. So one of the major things that I, that I wanted to work on in grad school was kind of combining laboratory and field work to really inform future studies. And so in the lab, we were looking at kind of how Nautiluses navigate an environment and trying to see, are they using visual cues? Do they know their surroundings? If, if the surroundings change, can they still navigate that kind of maze or that arena correctly? And that kind of transition to using those types of studies to look at how Nautiluses feed. So, you know, I mentioned that we collected video from the wild of Nautiluses digging. We thought digging for food and dragging their tentacles in the sand. Well, we took that video back in the lab and set up a, an aquarium just like the ocean with sand. And we trained Nautiluses to find food and we kind of recorded their feeding behaviors in the lab. And those feeding behaviors were the exact ones that we saw in the field. So from there, we were trying to understand, you know, how deep do Nautiluses dig? What tentacles do they specifically use to find food? And, you know, how quickly can they find food? So um, that really kind of helped us understand, you know, how they moved to find food, what prey items they prefer. One of the misconceptions that we still don't understand well is do they eat live or dead things? You know, we know they're attracted to dead prey items. One of our common baits we use to catch them is just raw chicken. You know, it's got a stench that goes a long way in the ocean. Nautiluses are really attracted to it. But uh, we don't know if Nautiluses are solely scavengers or if they are active predators as well. So um, in the uh, lab, I guess, were, were you guys using, were you using anything live or kind of primarily dead? For that step, we were using yeah. only, only dead. And, uh, you know, the next steps after that are to come up with other designs where, you know, we can give Nautiluses choices between live items and dead items and kind of see what happens. And then, you know, again, take that information to the field and kind of hopefully use that to help us inform how we conduct our studies in the field. I have a question about the uh, setup. So, and you mentioned uh, being on the AZA for the invert taxa. What, what are some of the conditions you got to worry about that are kind of different for keeping Nautilus versus other inverts or even fish? I think the big one is since Nautiluses live so deep in the ocean, the water's really cold. So any system that you set up, you have to have a, a pretty good chilling system. So you can maintain about 15 to 17 degrees Celsius. And similar to other cephalopods, so um, Nautiluses, octopus, squid, and cuttlefish have really high metabolism. So even though Nautiluses live where it's really, really cold, they still have a high metabolism that high metabolism is going to convert the food you feed it into waste. And so if you don't have a really good biological filtration system, you can have spikes in ammonia and spikes in nitrites, which can actually be more toxic to nautiluses and also other cephalopods because their skin is just basically made up of tiny pores that are just waiting to bring anything bad straight through internally to its internal organs. So water quality is so important with, with all animals, with all aquariums, but especially Nautiluses, maintaining that temperature really cold and ensuring, you know, you have zero ammonia, zero nitrites and, you know, really, really low nitrates. Okay. Well, you, you gave us a little bit of an intro. Can you go ahead and maybe give us a little more about their historical and current population size and maybe go into the conservation status right now? Yeah. So in 2011, you know, as I was just getting really into my dissertation, 
Uh, I started working with uh, one of the famous Nautilus researchers, Dr. Peter Ward, who did a lot of field work. He's been studying them for 30 years. And us and another team of uh, researchers basically had a simple question to ask of how many Nautiluses were left. Because we know that they've been fished since about the 70s just to supply a shell trade around the world where Nautilus shell is used in furniture, jewelry, any type of things, just as the whole shell to sit on different bookshelves and things. Uh, but nobody had any idea what was happening with populations. Uh, the only reports were from fishermen and some folks in certain areas of the Philippines that said they were catching less, they were catching less. And finally, you know, in 2011, we were able to get funding and actually go see how many Nautiluses there were today as compared to what we could surmise from, you know, 40 years ago. And basically, everywhere that they fished Nautiluses, the populations declined significantly within just a few years. And if they keep going, then in some areas, the populations are now locally extinct. It's, I guess it's a good example, but it's disappointing. But a population in this little tiny island called Sikihor in the Philippines uh, was once the home to the smallest Nautilus that at least we knew of at that time. And uh, it's locally extinct uh, based on the last data that we received from there where we didn't catch any Nautilus. We didn't see any Nautiluses using underwater video. Uh, that population was wiped out. So since then, since 2011 and over the years, you know, we've been working with different groups in the United States and also internationally to really see what kind of information and data we needed to collect to really get some meaningful conservation initiatives going. And uh, over that time, you know, the biggest one is the CITES group, which regulates trade of, of species throughout the world. And uh, just recently, this past year, so January 2017, all Nautiluses are at least now listed on the CITES Appendix 2, which basically just regulates the trade of Nautilus parts and pieces. So it doesn't stop it, you know, which is great. Our, our work kind of isn't to you know, stop what's going on, but hopefully we can manage these things a little better. So what the CITES listing does is it kind of tells countries that if they wish to export Nautilus, they need to do research to show that that export doesn't affect wild populations. So it's great because it helps get us more data. It helps understand more about wild populations. And it still allows countries, you know, a way to still utilize their resource in hopefully a sustainable way. No, that sounds great. Well, I did a little uh, searching online and I, I, I caught a, a web page with you on a boat fishing forum. Can you maybe give us a real brief on how you catch Nautilus and, and some of the difficulties with that? Yeah, ironically, they're fairly easy to catch. Even though they live deep, Filipino fishermen devise these really nice bamboo traps. They have a trap door. The Nautilus goes in searching for its bait, which most of the time is chicken. And uh, these traps are set to depths of about 300 meters overnight. Nautilus goes in. The Nautilus can't get out. And when you pull the trap up, it you know maybe takes a half an hour, but you're basically just using your hands, pulling the trap up for 300 meters and pulling the Nautilus out. So it is a lot of time, but you know I think that was the first kind of wow moment when we were doing this field work is that it's really not hard to catch them. So it's you know not a wonder why so many of them are being catched across the Indo-Pacific. Now tell us about some of the organizations working on chamber Nautilus conservation. I know a few stories I've kind of read on the internet related to some of the work you're doing, but maybe go ahead and tell us a few of those that, that you are working with that are a little unique. 
Yeah, I, I think the, the coolest thing out of this is just to see how many other people care. In 2010, there was a New York Times article that you know I read. I wasn't sure how many other people read it, but apparently an 11-year-old in Maine read it as well. And he and his friend just decided they wanted to do something. And right then and there, they set up a website and a group called Save the Nautilus uh, that is still going strong today. And, you know, they do things like travel to school groups around there where they live. They raise money through different things through young kids just all around the country sending in their, you know, little piggy bank of 12 <laughs> bucks, which is their life savings to to still just do something, to be part of, you know, protecting something. And uh, just meeting those two kids and seeing them, how passionate they are for this, you know, actually invigorates us, you know, as a scientist, you know, to see the the next generation kind of already taking it on at that young of an age, which is just really, really awesome. Now, I've also heard some about a Nautilus girl. Can you tell us about her? Yeah. Um, so if anyone's looking for a Halloween costume next year, uh, if you search Nautilus girl, she had the coolest costume. Her mom made her a, a Nautilus, and she was a Nautilus for Halloween a couple years ago. And instead of searching for candy, she was out handing flyers to uh, folks as she went door to door, telling people about Nautiluses and talking to them about them being overfished and how folks can protect them. And I've met her once, and you know, I talked to her fellow students. She was eight at the time, and those students at her school knew so much about Nautilus that I felt like I didn't have anything to say because she just talks to them about them constantly, and they're excited about it. I mean, they were super excited about you know this animal and just so kind of distressed and upset that it's disappearing, but still so passionate and ready to do something to make sure that they don't disappear. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Definitely eight-year-old. I think I was just worried more about getting candy. Yeah, I think so. I know I was. <laughs> so with all that said and all the things going on, I mean, is there anything listeners can do to help support conservation efforts? Yeah, I think we're in kind of a, a weird limbo right now because we have had some good conservation initiatives and we have had some good support. So right now it's like, what do you do next when you have all these regulations and such? And we're just continuing to you know, create awareness and educate the public about you know, not just Nautiluses, but the whole ocean, but really the deep sea. You know, it's an area where we don't know anything, don't know too much about. We've explored very little of it. We know it's being exploited. And there's things such as deep sea mining starting very soon that, you know, we're not sure of the impact. I think it's just creating an aware populace that, you know, there are animals down there. There is a habitat down there that is part of our larger ecosystem as a whole, planet Earth. And uh, it has a function in that. And, you know, I continue to do that traveling to schools wherever I'm at um, throughout the country or internationally talking to first graders to 80 year olds. You know, it's just telling the story, telling the story. And the more people know, um, you know, the more they're going to be able to help and the more educated they're going to be to make the uh, hopefully the right decision when the time comes to it. That sounds great. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I want to thank very much again our guest, Dr. Greg Barord, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Greg, did you have any final words of wisdom or information you wanted to pass out? Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, check us out, Save the Nautilus. We're on many different social media sites, but it's a really cool animal. And I think what's really more inspiring is to see the younger generation really taking a step forward with it, and they are the ones saving the Nautilus. So, Please check us out. Thanks for having me, Roy. 
Oh, really appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us in your time. Please be sure to check out Greg's web links, which will be found on his Aquarium Mania guest page. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. And, and yeah, Greg, I'm, I'm a little behind with the blog, but if you've got some pictures or anything I can upload onto the blog, that would be great. Sure. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, please be sure to visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish and inverts healthy, and keep an eye out for updates on chambered Nautilus research and conservation efforts by Greg and his colleagues. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.